Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. Okay, we're starting a new series called The Way of the Kingdom, and this is to follow on from our series called Rabbi in Talmudim, uh, basically which was a deep dive into the ways of Jesus and how we as uh, Talmudim to him as the rabbi can be with, become like, and do as Jesus did. And as we learn, we put into practice these things that we learn and we see the world impacted with God's love through us. So this next um, this series, The Way of the Kingdom, is effectively talking about how we live in this this way that Jesus has shown us through his life. And in Acts 2, um, the Christian church is referred to as the followers of the way. Yeah, and so for us, that's that's kind of the preface, the, the whole idea around this series. So when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come just to save humanity and disappear. But what he did was he came to bring a new kingdom, a new reality. It wasn't just this idea that you come, you're saved, and then one day you'll be raptured. No, it was this whole idea that almost a, a, a redemptive arc from the beginning of time to to the new kingdom that we're actually meant to be part of a restoration and a, a bringing and ushering in of a kingdom. But the thing what we have to understand about the, the ushering in of the kingdom of God and if it, particularly when Jesus first came on the scene, is that when Jesus came into the world to bring the new kingdom, the kingdom of God wasn't just bam, magically uh, there, didn't just appear, that he was actually born into a current kingdom. What I mean by that is that when he was born, he was born into the rules and the laws of the Roman Empire. So at the time that he was born, he was part of a ruling empire. You know, like we're born into Australia or America or Asia. You know, there's a government that's in place. Uh, there's a ruling empire with laws and ideas and values and a culture that's that's already ingrained. So when Jesus came, the kingdom of God just didn't magically appear as much as that would have been great we're in this tension of that the kingdom of god is here but it's still coming the now and the not yet yeah so when we're talking about the way of the kingdom this word way in um greek the word hodos means a way or road or a journey or a path and so when we're talking about the I am the way, the truth and the life, Jesus is referring to himself as a way, a road, but there's also a journey or a path there. And so understanding the, the original language and what Jesus was trying to get across in saying these things and the early church being followers of the way goes further than just, oh, this is the, these are the directions. Jesus is the right uh, place to go. Um, it's actually uh, an unfolding reality. So that's the word hodos, but the way that it's used metaphorically, we find in the Bible, is in a course of conduct, manner of thinking, feeling, deciding, and acting. Uh, another way to describe it is how to obtain a thing and what helps 
and uh, in the way in in obtaining that thing, someone's purposes and actions, and taking a course which pleases someone, even though it may be a perverse one. So that's a that's a really interesting thought. The way that we go about things, a course of action, or uh, that we go about it. Do we go about it? to get what we want, even if it's perverse. So that's just hold on to that thought. But uh, jumping back to what the kingdom that Jesus was born into, which was the Roman Empire, there's there's something, uh, a term that was used to describe the Roman Empire, which was called Pax Romana. The Pax Romana translates to Roman peace, which was a period of relative peace and stability across the Roman Empire, which lasted for about 200 years. So Jesus was born into Pax Romana. So when we read the Gospels, we have to understand that the ruling empire of the time was the Roman Empire. And the peace that the, the, the Roman peace, the, the way that peace was brought was through an iron hand, people call it. And which basically means that peace was brought through power and violence. Complete allegiance was required by the Roman Empire and any imperial threat to the empire was persecuted and often publicly through crucifixion. This led to prosperity, like you know, the all roads lead to Rome. We, we have a, a lot to attribute to the Roman Empire. But what would happen is they would overthrow cities or towns and they would then call these people like mini Rome. So we would, our expansion came through power and violence. Sorry, the Roman expansion rather. And so what ended up happening was foreign citizens would start serving in that the Roman army. So that's why they became so powerful is that they overthrew cities and towns, countries, whatever, um, whatever uh, place that they went that, and they overtook it, and then they will call them a mini-Rome, that you're part of our country, our empire, but then you would have to serve within the Roman Empire. So this was the way that they expanded, the way that they grew. But the, the, the problem with that was that it caused a lot of negativity within the Pax Romana because 90% of the population were farmers. Biblically, we have to understand that um, it was an agricultural economy. So a lot of what happened and a lot of rich and poor and these descriptions of biblical times were based upon agriculture. You know, we've got cryptocurrency. We're just making up different currencies day by day. But back in the day, if I stole or I overthrew you and took your um, farm or your crops from you, you would have nothing and I would have everything. So it's like this whole idea of rich versus poor. Jesus is is seeing this disparity between the, the kingdom of God and the Roman Empire, where their idea of richness is at the expense of someone else. So, because the population were farmers, the Rome had a large army to feed um, around 60 to 80 million people. So, they, they, as the army just kept growing, kept growing, they would, their, their resources would shrink and shrink and shrink. But people also could not own slaves during, uh, sorry, people could rather own slaves. So the ruling class um, didn't need to hire commoners to work for them. Therefore, unemployment and poverty were high 
although the Roman Empire tried to hide it. So the majority of the people had many problems with employment and poverty and food. There was a lack of food. So the government came up with a scheme called Bread and Circus. And this fed into the whole idea of trying to maintain Roman peace, Pax Romana. Bread and Circus, basically, they distributed, the government distribu distributed free grain and entertainment for those in need. This helped distract people from their problems, but this was only given to, to men and many animals. So remember, agricultural community, uh, society, economy, many animals died because that was the entertainment. And women couldn't get jobs, so they turned to prostitution. And like I was saying before, the, the massive disparity between rich and poor and the, the, uh, the Romans actually forced the Jewish people to worship Roman gods. They refused and therefore the Romans killed about a million Jewish people. They tortured them to death. They um, fed them to, to lions. They, they killed them for entertainment. And this, this was all to maintain this Roman peace that, that they have um, proclaimed. So I would say that that's not really peace. I would say that that is pseudo-peace. Because the way of the Roman Empire was to, in summary, to overpower, overthrow, distract from real issues, and impose characteristics and distinctives of their own culture upon other cultures. And then they called it peace. So it's, it's, it's a funny thought to, to sit here and actually realize that Jesus was born into that. So if Jesus is speaking out against this, it makes so much more sense when we read the, the scriptures in the gospel that that this was the, the ruling empire of the time, and that's why a new kingdom needed to come. But one way you could then credibly describe Pax Romana is through the, the term bread, circus, and empire. The idea of bread, circus, and empire is actually weaved into the scriptures without us realizing this. So I'm just going to go to Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11 to unpack this a little bit more. And this is the temptation of Jesus just after he'd been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fair play. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not be live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So look here at the, the correlation between Pax Romana, Bread Circus and Empire, and the temptation of Jesus, and, and see if you can pick up the, the correlation here. Then the dev devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, so far we have bread. Then we have entertainment. Throw yourself off. Be caught by angels. Fairly entertaining, I would say. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Really, really interesting, because if you read what Satan is tempting Jesus here with, there is a direct correlation to the way of the Roman Empire. Jesus is bringing a kingdom of peace, yet Satan is tempting him to succumb to the pseudo-peace of the world, bread, circus, and empire. And just to explain that, the Roman Empire uh, is just a picture of the kingdom of the world. So we could go back and look at the Babylonian Empire. We go back further and look at the Egyptian uh, Empire. These are all pictures of, uh, I guess, something that's anti-kingdom of God. The the ruling powers are what is anti the way of the kingdom. And so if we look at um, Jesus in verses 4-4, Chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, he was tempted by bread, which doesn't seem inherently wrong because the man was hungry. But what it does represent is this idea that all that is necessary to live a meaningful existence is to have your physical needs met. But Jesus said, no, it is written, people cannot live by bread alone. As good and necessary as it is to meet the needs of the poor people, poor people need more than a steady supply of bread. People cannot truly live without the word of God to nourish their impoverished soul. So to be human is to have a soul and to have a soul is to require more than a loaf of sourdough. Whereas the Roman Empire was able to appease people by bread alone, Jesus came to bring a new kingdom. Mind you though, Jesus did feed people later with with bread, but on his terms, not on the terms of Rome, but he was, was, I will not feed you at the expense of your soul, I will feed you from, uh, from a place of purity, from a place of kingdom. Whereas if we look at this idea of of being tempted by bread like Jesus was, he was saying that, no, I will not bow down to the ruling empire of the world, which happened to be the Roman Empire, but I will bring a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that's hard to say after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. That'd be hard to say after one day of, of fasting. So fair play to Jesus. He's done well. Then we go move on to a circus in chapter five, uh, verse five to six, and Jesus was tempted by circus, or a better way to say is entertainment. If if someone threw themselves off a building and was caught by angels, and it was like, and everyone saw it, because this is the temple's the epicenter of Jerusalem, everyone would be like, "My word, we need to follow that guy. That guy is awesome." Instagram will go off. YouTube will get subscriptions. Facebook will be blowing up. You know, and this is this whole thought here that if Jesus was threw himself off the temple, one of the busiest places in 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 Israel, and everyone saw, then what he would say is, I am the 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 Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, follow me. But then everyone would follow him, but under the pretense of the kingdom of the world entertainment and that Jesus would short change the kingdom of God to garner a quick following 
And you think, you think, all right, this is, it's good. We want people to follow Jesus. We want people to come into the kingdom of God. But Jesus would not clip the wings of the authentic human race by seducing them, by meeting physical needs and entertaining them, because that's not soul that's not the soul that is being saved. That is the external that is being saved. And, you know, the only validity that Jesus needs is not to provide, do miracles, do a trick. The only validity that Jesus needed was the resurrection. You know, his death, anyone can die on a cross. Yeah, you know, I don't want to undermine what Jesus did on the cross, but... Anyone can die on the cross. They did that regularly in the Roman Empire. It's different, though, when someone is resurrected from the grave. So this is the only validity that Jesus needed, and he didn't even do it during his lifetime. So this is talking about the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. He's not bringing a kingdom that says, let me entertain you. He's bringing a kingdom that says, let me transform you. So he didn't give in to the idea of entertaining people for the sake of growing a church. I know this might be an arrow might be going through some people's hearts right now, but Jesus did not come to capture people, but to liberate people. Thus, he rejected the temptation to turn the kingdom of God into a circus of the sensational. But did he do miracles? Yes, of course he did. Signs and wonders followed him, but he did it on his terms for the sake of setting people free and not for sensationalism. And what we have to realize about Jesus is that a lot of his ministry was done in the smaller towns. It wasn't done in going to the biggest, biggest city, throwing himself off a building to be caught by angels. He went through the small towns. He went and, uh, and met uh, women at, a mel- at the well, the, the, the the adulteress at the the well that, that refers to her in the Bible. You know, he went through small towns because his heart and his idea was not to bring a circus, a kingdom of, of circus, but a kingdom of transformation. And the final thing we see in, uh, in verses 7 to 10 is that Jesus was tempted by empire. The temptation was not actually to become, in this verse, like, bow down to me, Satan, saying, it's not become a Satanist. That is, that's not the point. But it was, the, the temptation was really subtle here, actually. Because as Jesus contemplated about how to go establishing his kingdom, the temptation was to do it in the way of Pharaohs and Caesars. Uh, so the way that it had been done for years, the, the way that um, the Roman Empire sustained peace which was through violence. The, the temptation to bypass the way of the suffering servant and seize the, seize the throne through the will of power, to become a righteous king through unrighteous means. That is so... When we actually look at it from that lens, you realize that Jesus was opposing thousands of years of empirical reign. Not just, not just of the time, but thousands of years. And he was saying that, no, I have a better way. I have a way that doesn't require power, violence, or an iron hand. Because Jesus could have created peace and established 
a, a righteous kingdom, but it not, would not have been the way of God. Jesus refused to establish the kingdom of God through the sword, but through the cross. Just take a moment and reflect on these things. It's it's quite confronting, but it's quite enlightening as well when you when you realize that the his the temptation that he had was not just art. Oh, is, is he sufficient for ministry? But it was like, no, is he a righteous king? And he proved that he was a righteous king because he was able to overthrow and overcome three pivotal worldly kingdom traits. Bread, circus, and empire. But let's think about it like in our, in our day, in our in application to our own lives. Have you ever been tempted by one of these three things? I know that we're not kings or queens and we're not ruling empires, but more along the lines of is the tension between our hearts and our minds, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Like, for example, do you repeatedly seek physical needs at the expense of your spiritual needs? I mean, I feel terrible but if i eat more drink more buy more watch more i feel happy and peaceful for an hour or two or do you seek the spectacle of a church and spirituality that is entertaining and exciting look at all the cool things we do and how my spirituality is cool and exciting now until you struggle again with the same issue when you're at home alone Maybe you use aggression and assertiveness to get what you want. If I just talk louder and over you, I will push you down and my point point will be my stepping stone to a higher platform. I mean, we don't have Rome-like violence and peace in Perth anymore. Well, I don't think we've ever really had it that significantly, but we do have people who realize that if I want to get something, heads will roll you got to get yours, like intimidation, control, anger. These temptations were presented to Jesus because they were the way of the Roman Empire and the powers of the world. They were pseudo-peace. Pax Romana was not peace. It was pseudo-peace. And they are still pseudo-peace. I just want to take a little um, tangent here. And I just read this recently, the, the whole idea of pathways or the hodos, the way of the kingdom, one way you can describe it is a pathway. And I was just, it got me thinking about neural pathways. Like, and I don't know if you've ever heard of the terminology, but the your brain being a giant jungle of wires, nerves, like every th- action, thought or behavior requires you to send a signal along a very specific pathway. And we have to traverse this jungle of wires. Like go if you went to the jungle, the Amazon jungle, you'd follow a pathway, you'd traverse the jungle. The exact path tells your brain what to do and how to do it. So now your brain is it's really clever. Each time you reuse a pathway, it takes note. And the pathway that it takes st- soon starts to become wider clearer and easier to travel along just like it would in the jungle you chop down some trees you travel that pathway i'm going to travel that pathway again because it's clear i'll just take that again again and again if you use the same pathway often enough it becomes so easy to travel along you can do it without thinking kind of like the way you drive home sometimes all the way from work without 
realizing you haven't paid attention. You just it's just so second nature to you. I make this connection because Hodos in Greek pathway, our neural pathways can actually influence the way that we act our mind. So there may be things that you say, do, or believe that are just so habitual to you that oh, I'm struggling. I'll just eat some more food. Or I'll watch this online. Oh, like uh, I don't feel like I'm a, a good Christian. I need some hyped up music. I need to to feel as though this this church is exciting and entertaining. Or maybe you you're just so used to getting your way through aggression and violence or assertiveness. You know, we need to capture these thoughts and realize that we need to think differently. Just because we've traveled a pathway before does not mean it is the kingdom pathway. Does not mean it is the pathway that Jesus would travel. So that's just a side thought there. But if we just look at Jesus though, like the way that he taught the kingdom was countercultural against the way that people thought. And if we can, we can see a clear uh, timeline from when Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit in Matthew three thirteen to 17. Then straight away he went into the desert, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then he overcame temptation or the Roman Empire, the worldly kingdom. Then he called his disciples straight away, Matthew 12 to 25. Then he sit, takes them up a mountain pretty much straight away, sets them down and says, this is the way of the kingdom. This is how to live in the kingdom. And this is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7 and something that we know as the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes are phenomenal teaching phenomenal and they can be known as the blessings but can also be understood as giving the believer be attitudes the attitudes that should be in the beatitudes jesus sets forth both the nature and the aspirations of citizens of his kingdom they they have and are learning the, these character traits so all of these character traits are marks and goals of all christians so we're going to spend the next few weeks in the Beatitudes unpacking the way of the kingdom. But I'm just going to start with one Beatitude today and go into the rest of the next few weeks. And if we look at verses uh, Matthew 5 verses 1 to 2, it's pretty straightforward. So we won't spend much too much time on those verses apart from the fact that the, the them that Jesus is teaching, when I read it, the them that he's teaching in verse 2 is not the crowd, but his disciples. So, if we if we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus was teaching his 12, the 12 disciples. He wasn't teaching the crowd. He was teaching his disciples and the crowd was just watching on. So, it's like, if we are... If we are disciples of God, of Jesus, this the Beatitudes are directly to us. Jesus is sitting down with his disciples saying, This is what this is the way of the kingdom, and people are just listening in. I'm not addressing them, I'm addressing you because you are disciples. So if you're if you're a Christian and you call yourself a follower, a disciple of Jesus, the Beatitudes are for you. 
they're to be looked at, learnt, embraced, and lived. And I th- we can't just see them as nice teaching, but they're actually aspirations and nature, uh, the nature and aspirations of of the disciples of God. It's also helpful to understand that they're not advice or instructions, but they're announcements. It's like Jesus is saying, this is who will be most blessed by the arrival of the new kingdom, to whom the gospel will really sound like good news. He's not saying, be like this, you have to become like this, you have to become like this. What he's saying is that when the kingdom of God comes, those who are like this will be blessed. Whereas a lot of us will be like, I need to do this, I need to do this. But what Jesus is actually saying is like, no, this is who will be blessed. And if those who dwell in the Spirit, with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, says in 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 the fruit of the Spirit um, passage, those who keep in step with the Spirit will, will produce these fruits. So those who keep in step with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will be like this. Not the not live your life just however you want. Don't pray. Don't don't abide in the vine, and then just try and become these things. No, Jesus is saying when you keep in step with the Spirit, this is who you will be, and you will be blessed. It's also he Jesus is is bringing about a radical change, like a reordering of assumed values. That what he's saying will be good news to some, while others will be threatened by it. Because there was a long-established order that had been advantageous for a few. So they didn't want it to change. Like, for example, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the high priest, Herod and Pilate, they were the ones who crucified Jesus. Because they were the ones who had a powerful stake in the present arrangement and hierarchy. Not the oppressed or poor. You know, the, the the fact that the Messiah hadn't come was good for the Jewish religious leaders because they could have political and economic power. Whereas the oppressed and the poor, like I was saying, in agricultural society, they were constantly being made poorer at the expense of people becoming richer. So when we read the Beatitudes, let's keep this in mind. So I'm just going to read the first Beatitude from Matthew 5 verses 1 to 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And that's why I was saying them, not the crowds, but his disciples, them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, the word for blessed, which in some sense means happy, is applied to God in 1 Timothy 1 verses 11 saying, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The Greek word is makarios, then, which then describes that joy which is has a secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. So those who are poor in spirit contain a joy that is completely independent of circumstance and that makes me say hey i want to be poor in spirit i want to be blessed you know and the first thing that we do is we say tell me how tell me how to do this and what i'm going to do here is i'm going to present to you some understandings of 
um, this this beatitude as opposed to giving you a straight answer. And I want you to wrestle with it and and pray through it and 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 just hear these words and then go away and say, God, speak to me through this. I'm going to wrestle with this. I'm going to sit on this, and I'm and I'm going to allow you to work this out through the way that I live. So there are a few understandings of poor in spirit. And and the first one is, if we look in the Greek, poor means uh, patokos, or tokos rather, from the root pateo or pipto, which is a beggar, one who is destitute, a pauper, spiritually poor, humble, or devout. The Aramaic, though, and we have to understand that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and he did a lot of his teachings in Aramaic. So when we look at things, we have to look at the the, the original language he's spoken because it gives us such richness of understanding. And the Aramaic word for poor is miskaneh, which is actually an Aramaic idiom for one who voluntarily gives up all material things for a spiritual benefit. In other words, becoming materially poor to become spiritually rich. Had Jesus spoken these words in Greek, we would have to assume he was indeed speaking of the unfortunate poor, those who are poor because of their circumstances, physical disability and lack of opportunity, or the oppression uh, on their lives. Yet to earn a place in heaven simply because you're poor doesn't actually fit with the teachings of Jesus. Besides, besides the, definition, the definition of poor actually varies greatly through the scriptures. But then we would ha- we'd be forced to take the more extreme use of the Greek word tokos, which is humble or devout, to really fit into the context of the teaching of Jesus. And like I was saying, um, Jesus' teachings, a lot of scholars agree that Jesus taught the Sermon Mount in Aramaic. And the word miskenere does not actually contradict the Greek word tokos, but it's more descriptive, which is always good. But miskiner has the idea that being voluntarily poor as a couple will make themselves less prosperous for the sake of having children. They will be poor in the sense that they will not be able to be purchased material things for themselves as they must use those for resources for their children. So say, for example, in Eastern culture, the children provide for their retired parents and will make themselves poor for the sake of their parents' well-being. In our culture where parents generally have strong retirement funds, children may still make themselves poor in personal freedoms and lifestyle as they become caregivers for their parents. And this is the the kind of poverty that Jesus is actually referring to. He's referring to this voluntary poverty for the sake of gaining a spiritual wealth. Like my wife and I, we, we had kids and we went into it fully aware that we would have less money for ourselves because we would be keeping these kids alive. But the joy that comes with having children far surpasses anything that we could buy, any physical, materialistic thing. The joy of having children is is incomparable, you know? So when Jesus couples this Aramaic uh, the word uh, with the word Bruce, spirit, poor and spirit, he was speaking a very common idiom of one who was so hungry to know God and have a relationship with him that material things are of no value to him. Hence he is poor because of his spiritual desires. 
Jesus spoke in idioms a lot. So we, we have to study this to see what Jesus was saying. You know, like we use um, catchphrases, slogans. We use idioms, metaphors. Jesus did the same. So we have to look back and go deeper to understand this. So the kingdom of God is an, also an Aramaic idiom for knowledge of God or knowing the deep secrets of God. Thus, Jesus is saying, Blessed are those who hunger more for spiritual things than material things, for they will know the secrets of God. That's phenomenal. That is That just gives me a different understanding of it. Did, did Jesus care for the poor? Of course he did. Let's not call that into account. But what Jesus is, is saying here and what we see in, in Acts 2 is that when the kingdom of God comes and the church awakens, that the poor are taken care of regardless. But the poor in spirit are the ones who will be blessed. Because you can receive physical things but still, still be lacking in your soul. So what Jesus is dealing with here is eternity. Do we take care of people? Yes, of course we do. But when we when we take it from a bias or an understanding that we have or a bent that we have, we can miss the meaning and the depth of, of meaning that's actually there. And I just want to share one more understanding before I wrap up. And it's best described in rewording the verse. And I got this from a man called Brian Zand. He's an amazing author. Um, really challenging in in how he how he describes the life of Jesus but he 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 describes his beatitude as blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual for the kingdom of heaven is well suited for ordinary people and all my ordinary people said amen remember that the 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 time the religious elite of the time dictated who was acceptable the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, they all butted heads with Jesus. And they were also the ones who got Jesus crucified. So Jesus continuously lowered the standard of laws and rules in the Jewish tradition to make it accessible to anyone who would just believe. But what he did was he raised the standard of his own living to then give us this gift of grace through faith of, and salvation. So there were 613 laws that the, the religious elite told, said people had to live by. Whereas the ordinary people like who weren't in full-time ministry or didn't have Bible college degrees or weren't pastors or leaders, the, the ordinary people were like, how am I supposed to get into the kingdom? I'm not like the religious elite. Whereas Jesus is saying, well, actually, when the new kingdom comes, because you're, you're not that good at being spiritual, you're going to be blessed because it's all about loving God and loving people. It's two simple things. Love God and love people. I will do the hard yards. You just have to believe. And that's why that's why the, the, the Jewish and religious elite were like, we can't have this guy around. He's going to take our job from us. So let's crucify him. Let's crucify him in the way of the imperial crucifixion. Because he became an imperial threat when he one said to, to, to Pontius Pilate, I am king of the Jews. 
And Pontius Pilate's like, yeah, maybe maybe you're just a religious nut. Yeah, of course. I've seen people like you come and go before. Then he's like, all right, hold up. Are you the religious? Are you the king of the Jews? And for a second time, Jesus said, yes, I am. And then that's when Pontius Pilate realized that the Roman Empire was at threat because... Because the king of the Jews it was prophesied and what people believe would be a military leader who would rise up and overthrow the Roman Empire. Whereas Jesus' idea was not to overthrow through power and violence, but to overthrow through forgiveness and compassion, through the cross, through sacrifice. And that's what we have to understand for those of us who might not feel like we're the best Christians or the were poor in spirituality, it's actually good news for you that Jesus came. Because he then said, hey, you may not be good at reading your Bible. You may not be good at remembering verses or prayer. You may not be good at being a spiritual person. But I have made a better way. The cross. And Jesus exemplified this on the cross when he, he welcomed the thief next to him into paradise through the most minimal of requests. The, the, the thief says, God, Jesus, will you just remember me? And Jesus says, you will, you will be in paradise with me. It's simple as that. The guy on the cross was not good at being spiritual. That's why he was on the cross. You know, it kind of tells you something. You may not be good at spirituality. You may be poor at it. You may struggle. Can I tell you that the way of the kingdom is a transformative one? You may not be good at it now. You may never be good at it. Doesn't mean that your place in heaven is revoked when you believe in the name of Jesus. But when we follow the way of the kingdom, there's a transformation that happens inside of us. Because it's not about the external things, it's about the internal things that become external things. The internal transformation that becomes kingdom action. So, when we look at this beatitude, let's wrestle with the duality of these understandings. Blessed are those who hunger for more spiritual things than material things, for they will know the secrets of God. And blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual, for the kingdom of heaven is well suited for ordinary people. I dare say it's both. What it does do, though, it just gives us a clear picture of the goodness, the greatness, the glory and the grace of our God. The way that we live and act and think in the kingdom of God Hungry for more of God, not like an elite group of people, but as broken people who've been saved by grace through faith. Let's check our hearts and our motivations. Let's humble ourselves before God and choose to think differently. Slow down, pray, seek silence and solitude. Keep in step with the Spirit, for the Spirit reveals the deep things of God. The way of the kingdom is beautiful. It's not, it shouldn't be divisive. The way of the kingdom, being poor in spirit, 
It all comes back to, did Jesus die on the cross? Yes. But did he resurrect again? Yes. That is all the validity of validation that we need to know that the kingdom of God is the better way. Come on, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you that you are good. Jesus, we lift your name up. You are our Lord. We just pray that as we go through this journey that you would reveal to us such deep truths of the kingdom. Lord, that we would think we would allow our brain and our heart to be rewired and to be in step with you. Lord, we don't want to just think things because we've always thought them. Lord, we want to be new, renewed, and we want to be more like you, Jesus. Amen. Love you all. Um, we're going to be preaching on the Matthew 5 verses 4 to 6. So listen to our next podcast to, to keep on this journey with us. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.